I'm Leonard Lopate. In 1954, Robert W. Welch Jr. wrote a book about John Birch, an American military intelligence officer who died during World War II. And four years later, Welch founded the John Birch Society, a political advocacy group that often promoted conspiracy theories and extreme ideas. In 1964, on the floor of the U.S. Senate, Welch accused President Eisenhower of being a communist. Although conservatives like William F. Buckley dismissed the John Birch Society's far-right claims. In his latest book, Edward H. Miller argues that Welch's ideas have gone on to influence the Tea Party, QAnon, some libertarians, members of the Trump administration, and mainstream ideology within the Republican Party. The book, A Conspiratorial Life, Robert Welch, The John Birch Society, and the Revolution of American Conservatism is published by the University of Chicago Press, and it brings Edward H. Miller to our show now. Welcome. Oh, it's quite an honor to be here. Uh, thank you very much for having me in attendance. Well, this is such an important subject <laughs> and a fascinating story. <laughs> you write this about the legacy of the John Birch Society. I'm quoting, from calls for small government, lower taxes and reduced immigration to opposition to abortion, marriage equality and trans rights to support for white supremacy and police authority. The ideas popularized by Robert Welch and the John Birch Society have become a foundational cornerstone for both the secular and the religious right. So... Um, when people often ask how American politics and conservatism got to where they are today, uh, are you saying, uh, to some degree, because of the John Birch Society? Well, I, I certainly am, and it, but it was no intention of me to um, to write in this fashion to uh, write a to write a book about um, Robert Welch and the John Birch Society and how it impacted the culture, but. You know, as you know, it it takes a long time to to write a book. Mm-hmm. It takes several years. In fact, it took me uh, seven years to write this uh, particular monograph. And uh, the follow up to your first the, book, Nut Country, Right Wing Dallas, and the birth <laughs> of, of the Southern Strategy. Yes, uh, but but the time sort of met the book. <laughs> you know, is, is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. It it. Um, and it was sort of a coincidence how it came out that way. It's been reported uh, that Donald Trump's father, Fred Trump, was a supporter and friend of Welsh. Is that true? I, you know, I've heard that rumor, uh, but I've never been able to verify it. Uh, it was in a, uh, it was in uh, something that I read recently, but I never was able. I think it was a, it was a statement made by Roger Stone, uh-huh. who is. Um, not the most uh, voracious character, if or you will. reliable and, figure. Yes, <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna quote Ro- uh, Roger uh, Stone on it. Okay. Um, but uh, the that that's what I've that's what I've heard. Uh, so it's a hear. It's something that's hearsay. Well, let's look at Robert Welch's history. Robert Welch Jr. was born in 1899, raised on a plantation in North Carolina to a family that had fought for the Confederacy, owned slaves, believed in white supremacy, and distrusted the federal government. So should we be surprised by how he turned out? Well, it's an interesting thing. It was a book where I needed, I knew I needed to go back into his past and his family's past to understand uh, the roots of his conspiratorial thinking. And I took a look at, you know, where he, where he came from in uh, North Carolina. They were a, uh, a family of farmers uh, who were, uh, of course, under a lot of pressure Financially, after the Civil War, their products were uh, deflating as far as the, the the price of their products, and they were, um, in many ways, beholden. Um, um, they were basically beholden uh, to the what they saw as the Eastern banks, and so uh, I'm sure the there was an element of conspiracy. Uh, I don't know that the family thought these things, but I, I'm sure that it was a part of the 
uh, this this concept that the Eastern banks were keeping them in thrall and keeping them in debt. Uh, his um, his his uncle uh, Robert Welch's father's uh, brother uh, served in the state legislature and was very active in the efforts to restrict the rights of uh, African Americans uh, in North Carolina. So. Uh, so it, we'll get to that there, in I a mean, little are, while, obviously. Yeah. But yeah. wasn't Welsh a child prodigy who enrolled at the University of North Carolina at 12 and graduated at 17? That, that oh, sounds pretty was. extraordinary. He yeah. must have been very smart. Yes, uh, despite what um, you know, some of the liberal critics have said about you know, how the right has exaggerated his um, his. Uh, how precocious he was as a youth, it was actually very true. Uh, He was reading at a very early age, two or three years old. He was, uh, he, he went to the University of North Carolina at 12. I mean, there are pictures of him lined up with his classmates and he's obviously the shortest of all his, how well did he do classmates? He, he did. He did fairly well. He was able to keep up. He was not. Um, he he was unable to participate in a lot of the student activities that is that uh, that the students were able to engage in. Of course, he wasn't. He was twelve years old, so he was uh, he was he was not a member of the fraternity. He focused on uh, academics, and he was a math wizard. He was uh, interested in philosophy. Um, so, and he graduated at 16 before going into the uh, U.S. Naval Academy. And then when he came out, he worked for his younger brother's candy company and then started his own candy company. And I was surprised, considering yep. his attitudes about the North. Wasn't that in Brooklyn? It was actually in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Oh. So he left oh, the— Brookline, maybe. Okay. Um, he, yeah, he he left the uh, he he left the uh, Annapolis, mm-hmm. goes to Boston and starts. Um, he goes to Harvard Law School, where he meets uh, Felix Frankfurter, and he's turned off by the liberal policies of Felix Frankfurter. Felix Frankfurter thought that uh, employees and employers couldn't get along. So uh, after his 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 stint at Harvard Law, he leaves Harvard Law and decides that uh, he wants to make money. And in the words of um, Robert Welch, he says, I, I wanted to make more money than Papa. Hmm. <laughs> and he goes, starts, he, he thinks one day, what can I do that is sort of low cost, that everybody loves, uh, that that can get me going at a, at a you know, without a, a big investment at first. And he, just, and he decides, you know, considering that he is here in Boston, that candy is the thing to do. So he heads down to uh, a Cambridge, heads down to a Cambridge candy, uh, candy store, purchases this Avalon fudge from a gentleman who is making this delicious fudge and starts the Oxford Candy Company. And um, it does very well. But then he comes up against the uh, Great Depression in 1929, and uh, because of his investment in, in other things, he tried to branch out to Chicago. Uh, he's unsuccessful and has to um, declare bankruptcy and then go work for his, for, his, uh, for his brother James, which is a bit of a... Um, it's a bit of a tough thing for him to do uh, because he's so proud of what he's what he's accomplished. But he was anti-labor and against social programs and said that unions were useless. Was that his opinion from the start or did that come out of his experiences in business? You know, that's a that's a great question. And um, between the time that he left um between the time that he left the University of North Carolina, he started to, and he always liked to write. And the earliest I know of that is he wrote these jingles. Um, they were these sort of, um, 
uh, they were little little rhymes that would appear in local North Carolinian newspapers, and that was the first instance where he he criticizes unions is in these um, is in these jingles that he that he writes. Uh, some of them are corny. Um, uh, uh, some of them are actually funny, but so that's before he um, went into business. And he, yeah, he also yeah. claimed that poverty yeah. was due to a lack of initiative and that self-discipline was preferable to social spending to aid the poor. Uh, was yeah. he getting all of those ideas from what he'd learned in school from reading Austrian economists Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises? Well, actually, it, it's, it's before he's reading Mises and Hayek, because Hayek are publishing post-war Mm-hmm. And uh, Mises a little is a, is a little bit earlier, but um, Welch is probably getting it from you know, the McGuffey readers that he's picking up. The um, the uh, sort of the, the he's getting it from the probably the Coolidge administration rather than uh, Mises and uh, Mises and Hayek. So mm-hmm. he's getting it well before even the conservative intellectuals. Well, yeah. he there's a progression here uh, where he goes on to become somewhat paranoid believer in conspiracy theories. Up at this point, he's just uh, rather conservative uh, in his thinking about capitalism. Yes, yes, it is. It's sort of a uh, it, it is a a devolution. Um, it, it's he is he's moving closer and closer towards. This this idea of conspiracy, and the only word, the only time he ever uses the word conspiracy is in uh, 1950 when he runs for lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. Um, that was the only mention of conspiracy that I saw. Um, of course, he's a member of the uh, America First Committee, and he and he also thinks that. Uh, Roosevelt is sort of moving us, moving the United States towards war. So he's influenced by John Flynn and some of the other, some of the other conspiracists of the age. Uh, but the only time he, he mentions conspiracy himself was in that uh, governor's race at the end of the end of the governor's race. Well, Edward, uh, that H. might be that might be yeah, that might be political that he doesn't want to use the word conspiracy. Yeah. Well, you use it in the title of your book, the book we're discussing. My guest is Edward H. Miller, whose latest book is A Conspiratorial Life, Robert Welsh, The John Burr Society, and the Revolution of American Conservatism from the University of Chicago Press. Uh, This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. So what's the story of the origin of the John Birch Society? Who is John Birch? And... Why name it after uh, yeah. him? That is a great question. Uh, John Birch is sort of the uh, he he becomes he of course becomes the um, the symbol of the John Birch Society. But he's a he's a Baptist missionary who's killed by the Chinese communists ten days after the end of World War II. Um, it was a, at that particular time. In 1954, the right is having a difficult time. Um, Robert Taft had died. McCarthy was in a downfall due to due to alcoholism. Um, MacArthur had been fired. Uh, so Welch writes this book and um, hopes it's a big success. And it, it's basically a conspiratorial thesis. And um, he's addressing who lost China. That's the big question of the book. That was the 1954 and at the book. Of it, what's that? That was the 1954 book, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 He's he's um, he, he, he's addressing who lost China in 1949, and and he says that it's a uh, at the center of it is John Birch, hmm. um, and he offered this evidence of a. His supposed evidence of a massive conspiracy and a supposed massive cover-up centered on the loss of China and treason by American officials. Um, and he calls Birch the first casualty of the Cold War. Uh, Birch is, 
goes off to China, he, evang- he evangelizes, and um, he is ultimately killed by the Chinese um, Chinese communists. Um, and uh, a Chinese nationalist soldier goes on and, and tells the tale, um, uh, like Ishmael. <laughs> and um, the um, so Welch talks about how it's first calculated murder by the Chinese Communist Party and then cover up by the State Department. Those are the two. Okay, so he wrote a book, uh, but then he creates the John Birch Society in 1958. And uh, uh, how soon did its well, who joined him, first of all, and how soon did its ideology broaden from being just uh, anti-communist to include opposition to abortion, homosexuality, the ERA, and sex education? Oh, that takes a while. But hmm. among the, the initial uh, participants in that first meeting in 1958 was Fred Koch, um, who was a leader of um, mm-hmm. the National Association of Manufacturers. The father of the, Co- the, the famous president. Koch brothers. Oh, the Koch brothers, yeah. Hmm. The, um, the, the, um, he was the president of the Rock Island Oil and Refinery Company, which later became Koch Industries. Hmm. Um, but there's other people like... Um, uh, William Greedy and um, T. Coleman Andrews, who runs against Eisenhower in 1956, who so he opposes the income tax. Um, Henry Renury, the founder of, of Renury Press? Uh, yes, he was there. Hmm. He was there. Um, uh, a whole host of folks who were believed in what Welch was saying, um, who... Who, who didn't question him when he when he spoke for 17 hours that that weekend? It was quite a. There were a lot of cups of coffee uh, <laughs> imbibed at that weekend. There's that also weekend. Howard Pugh, president of Sun Oil Company, uh, and yes. and for yeah. years, wasn't the John Birch Society kept afloat financially by the Texas billionaire oil man Nelson Bunker Hunt? Was he there from the start? He, I'm not sure if he was there from the start, uh, but he was certainly, he kept it afloat in the 1970s. He was by far, um, and I mean by far, the, the biggest um, financial backer of the John Birch Society. I mean, when, when, um, when Welch was in trouble financially, and sometimes he was in trouble financially, he would head down to Texas and, and speak with Nelson Bunker. Um, mm-hmm. Nelson Bunker Hunt, and um, who, they both shared the same um, the same ideological background. Um, one time, somebody came up to Nelson Bunker Hunt, and um, they said, "You know, Barry Goldwater is joining this, and Ronald Reagan's joining this." And and, and Nelson Bunker um, Hunt took a look at the list, and he said, "Well, these, these guys aren't that conservative. They're certainly not as conservative as my father and Robert Welch." <laughs> well, let's look at some of the conspiracies that the Birch Society claimed. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, I mentioned in my introduction they, that they charged that President Dwight D. Eisenhower was a communist agent. What was that based oh. on? Well, I mean, he was an American of, hero, the, the yeah, general who won World hero. War II for the United States, as well, much as anybody. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Supreme Allied Commander, the guy who said go on the morning of, um, let's go, he said, on the morning of December uh, 6th, um, or excuse me, June 6th, uh, June 6th, 1944, um, you know, and, and D-Day began because of what he said. Um, he was... He, he was a an American hero. And, and a Republican. Um, and, 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 well, yeah, a Republican throughout his life. Nobody knew it at that point, but it was, um, yeah, he voted Republican his whole life. But it was ridiculous to call Ike, who is um, about, as, um, about as patriotic and heroic as, as you can be, um, a, uh, a, a communist. It's, uh, uh, but Welch was just getting started um, when he... When he started to call, well, let me go back to your question. He, but he, he was saying that the good press that he was getting from, uh, you know, the good press that he was getting 
to become president? Why? Where did this come from? It must have been the communists. The, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, the some of the decisions that he that he made to um, to hold off on a, on a um, some of the decisions that he made in World War II um, were evidence of um, that he was a communist. But it was all it was all um, a reach. Um, yeah, so. and they also said that Sputnik was a hoax, and the Soviet Union didn't have a space program. Oh, I mean, you can name one; it's, it's one after the other. He yeah. thought that Sputnik was a hoax. He, hmm. a hoax. Um, Vietnam was a phony war. It was um, run, to run the, from the to advance from, one from world the government. Kremlin. Yeah, he said that the civil rights revolution, um, you know, with heroes such as Martin Luther King. Um, was a conspiracy of the communists. The creation of the United Nations was a was a step towards world government. Um, uh, he said that, that communists and American officials were working behind the scenes. He, he said that the Kennedy assassination was a um, it, it was the it, it was the Kremlin that did that, not Lee Harvey Oswald. That the Robert F. Kennedy assassination was um, a, cons- a conspiracy. He said that Martin Luther King was killed by a conspiracy. And um, I mean, the list goes on and on. Nixon was elected in '72 so that so that um, David Rockefeller could run the world. And you know, <laughs> it's, it's um, one conspiracy after another. <laughs> well, how central? Which I don't believe in. <laughs> Chip, Chip Berlay, who's written about the John Birch Society, says that, I'm quoting, the John Birch Society views white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ethnocentrism as the true expression of America. They use constitutionalist arguments and conspiracist scapegoating to mask this, uh, I, I guess, to mask their racist viewpoint, because uh, again and again, we return to race as one of the, their central concerns. Yes, well, Welch. Um, one of the, the the things that Welch would do was on all highways, um, on many of the, ironically, the highways that Ike built, <laughs> uh, on interstate highways, you'd see this. Join join the John Birch Society. Help impeach Earl Warren. Of course, Earl Warren is the is the individual who started. Um, he, he passed the the. Um, the stellar uh, Brown versus Board of Education, which began the process of uh, desegregating schools. He probably would like the yeah. current Supreme Court a lot more. Oh, certainly. Uh, I'm certain. Certainly. Uh, yes. Uh, especially on abortion. Uh, yes. So uh, because I, that was one of the um, yeah, that was one of the issues that the that the Birch Society really pioneered was this um, abortion being a um, being something that they needed to to fight. Well, and, the and number of the really, issues of yeah. the day: abortion, uh, gay rights, the well, oh yeah, uh, women's yeah. Uh, sex education. Uh, they were arguing about those things then, and they still remain as as issues today. Uh, how yeah, much of that and, is and based were, on religion? Yeah. In part, yes. Um, that you know, they were they were at the head of the the fight um, against abortion. Many of the the Republicans had been sort of pro-choice on abortion until um, Nixon came to the conclusion that um, because of the victory in New York with um, uh, James Buckley. Who ran on the conservative Republican ticket? Um, uh, excuse me, the conservative ticket um, that Republicans could win on this issue of abortion. So in '72, Nixon ran on a pro-life uh, platform, and the Republican Party moved to the right on the abortion issue. But it was Welch early on, in the, in the early '60s, in the late '60s. Um, Arguing that it was um, that it was abortion was was murder. In fact, he said that Ronald Reagan was not a conservative because uh, he supported a liberalized a liberal 
abortion law in 1967. Despite all of his other positions. So, yes. Well, I'm really interested in just how much the Bircher's way of thinking differed from more mainstream American conservatives. When Welsh founded the John Birch Society in 1958, didn't William F. Buckley label it a fringe right-wing group and try to marginalize Welch in the National Review? Uh, did, did he continue to do that? And did other establishment conservatives also try to dismiss it? Yes, yes, they did. Uh, Buckley was afraid that uh, it would become, the John Birch Society would become sort of the leader, the lead organization of the conservative movement. That's what William Rusher said. And that the conservative, so the conservative movement would be associated with uh, sort of this zany conspiratorial viewpoint, uh, which would make it very difficult to elect a conservative in 1954, hopefully for Welch being Barry Goldwater. Uh, so that's, that's what, and, and Barry Goldwater helped um, the process, not criticizing uh, the members of the society, but criticizing Welch, arguing that Welch should go back to the, um, go back to the editorial board. Of the um, of the John Birch Society and avoid um, avoid getting involved um, in in high level politics. So uh, now the the uh, the John Birch Society w was gaining followers through all sorts of methods, including American Opinion magazine. Uh, in, by 1976, the Birch Log column written by uh, their public relations director, John McManus, was syndicated in 140 newspapers. So there were a lot of people yeah. open to this. And, and the radio station of, one of, of John Birch Society member, Adam Allen Stang, was aired on 117 stations. And that's before Rupert yeah. Murdoch even got into the business. Yeah. And, and, you know, the real way that they were able to influence politics was through ad hoc committees. What they did was they, Welch was, was quite bright in, in setting up these uh, single-issue ad hoc committees comprised of folks who weren't necessarily members of the John Birch Society, uh, but were interested in lower taxes. So he started something called TRIM, Tax Relief Immediately which ultimately led to the Reagan tax cut. He started something called Motorid, um, which was an organization against um, for moral decency, and that which opposed um, which opposed sex education in schools, which opposed other things. So you're it, it's able to attract people who would never join the John Birch Society, but we're really interested in these single issue. Um, these single issue things that still go on today, um, but are not associated with the, with conspiracy. There are other organizations like um, uh, the Support Your Local Police, uh, which was an organization to oppose the federal takeover of the police um, uh, of the police departments, and uh, so that that was really a crucial moment when they got into these ad hoc committees because it attracted a huge following um, numbers that really can't even be calculated because they were sort of subsidiary groups that followed the ideas of, of Welch but had really nothing to do with the John Birch Society. They were maybe led by Birchers, but uh, they didn't necessarily... Um, comprise individuals who were Birchers themselves. Well, how many, at its height, how many people were dues-paying members around the country of the John Birch Society? It, it, was, it was actually smaller than Welch sometimes touted. They had, um, according to the Massachusetts, uh, the Massachusetts has to, uh, the, the Birch Society has to notify how many members are in it. But according to Massachusetts, uh, Secretary of State's office. I think the highest numbers were 24,000. Um, but, you know, 24,000 zealots can make a difference. Mm. Uh, I, I, I've read 100,000 dues-paying members 
uh, yeah. were the highest. Yeah. And they had 60 full-time staff in the 1960s. And yeah, they had they had a lot of the organization, which the the organizational prowess which he he earned, he gained from his his stint in uh, the candy business and, and his unsuccessful uh, lieutenant governor's uh, race uh, had a lot of bearing on how they were able to impact politics. You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Oh, we're meeting at the courthouse at 8 o'clock tonight. You just come in the door and take the first turn to the right. Be careful when you get there, we'd hate to be bereft. But we're taking down the names of everybody turning left. Oh, we're the John Birch Society, the John Birch Society. Here to save our country from a communistic plot. Join the John Birch Society, help us fill the ranks. To get this movement started, we need lots of tools and cranks. Now there's no one that we're certain. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Edward H. Miller. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, A Conspiratorial Life, Robert Welsh, The John Birch Society, and the Revolution of American Conservatism. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212 2092950 during today's show and we'll be happy to send you a copy that's give and the number 2 wbai.org or 212-209-2950 but don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate Lodge and we thank you very much and return now to Edward H. Miller his book is published by the University of Chicago Press did you know about that song? I did. Was that the? Um, oh, we had the John Burr uh, Society. Blank trio. Yeah. Yes. Uh, blank trio. I'm. I'm blank. I'm uh, <laughs> blanking on yes, it. It's, it's one a of little the, bit before my the Kingston Trio. Yes. So that was Kingston a trio. that was a parody okay. song, really. Yeah, yeah, and, and they were in the culture. I mean, you had you had Bob Dylan writing about the the John Birch Society. They were. Yeah. Um, you know, with the in the uh, the film Doctor Strange Love, or, um, or how I love to learn to stop worrying and love the bomb. Um, one of the um, one of the generals is is the is is talking about his precious bodily fluids and 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 um, fluoride was a big issue with the John Birch Society. They didn't want uh, fluoride in the water and. Um, they said to brainwash people. They said to brainwash people, and you see that today with the with vaccines and the like. So um, it continues. Well, similar to Donald Trump and his base today, the Birchers refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of political opposition and suggested that. People who disagree with them were acting in bad faith, if not as part of a greater conspiracy. So how do you argue with people who will not acknowledge an alternative point of view? Well, it, it, as far as um, as, as far as the John Birch Society, um, I, I think that they had just they had their they or, or myself. <laughs> No, 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 no. I was talking about John Birch Society because I also see similar things right now when uh, oh, okay, when when when, well, uh, you know. when mega people are are questioned about uh, how they their okay. take on what's going on, and it's just as though they have been totally oblivious to much of okay. what's going on in the news. I think Robert Welch would say, read this book and your eyes will be open. Mm-hmm. He, his idea was, um, if, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And um, once you discover the truth, uh, Americans will elect the right leaders and everything will be fine. I think that that's, that's how he approached it. Um, that was his, because he wanted to establish an educational organization. This was not really an organization that was um, 
it did get in, involved in the 1964 convention, and of course he he made statements about about politicians, but it didn't it didn't become uh, that much entailed with politics, um, electoral politics. It, it was more an educa- It was more an organization to the uh, chagrin of some members uh, that you know. Well, to just encourage people to read read this book, read the People's Potage, um, which was a con- um, one of the the twelve candles that he called that were essential to understanding the communist um, menace. Or Fred Schwartz's, you can you can trust the communist to be communist. Um, he, he would have these these books and, and encourage people to read a lot and, and watch Birch Society films and interact with each other. And it was a lot of fun to be to be a <laughs> a Bircher at that particular time. They would gather and and watch films where Welch would talk, and it was almost a social club that you would do that you would have on a Tuesday night uh, with with people of your who thought the same. Um, and Rick Perlstein said being a Bircher was fun. Uh, Rick Perlstein is a is a great historian of this of this era, and he's um, uh, and that that's what attracted a lot of the the housewives and and middle class people who were uh, who realized that something was wrong, but they couldn't put their finger on it. You know, they were upwardly mobile they believed in the ideals of america and and um but there was something going on that was uh that wasn't right and they began to embrace a lot of these ideas that welch um welch um and and, uh, talked about well toward the end of his life didn't his views become increasingly paranoid uh, he believed that yeah. the Illuminati and the yeah. Trilateral Commission controlled the plan. Yeah, yeah, that was a, you know, as a writer, uh, and he was, you know, he's very. He, he starts to become. He, he's most active in the 1960s, but by the early 60s, he's had a stroke. He's had. You know, he carries a cane. I, Some I people felt really he, was, was, he had untreated mental illness. Is that likely? Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't. I couldn't. I, I, there was no evidence whatsoever that that you know that, that I came across that would suggest that. Um, but he was getting older as a gentleman, so I, you know, as and he began to uh, come to different conclusions about about who was running things, and it was no longer the 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 communists. It became. Uh, something that was more uh, uh, a little elusive, and he said that it was the Illuminati that was uh, running things, and it was the the Trilateral Commission, and the and the as as Dan Smoot said, the Council of Foreign Relations that were the real kingmakers of of the world, and so um, you know it, it was. It became a little bit more uh, bizarre in um, in later years, and also the John Birch Society became less um, less organized. He was hiring a lot of second-rate folks, and um, who weren't uh, sometimes those second-rate folks turned out to be third-rate folks, and uh, there were um, there were some problems in Belmont. Well, the Illuminati uh, really are came around in Bavaria around the time the United States uh, became a nation, 1776. Uh, Now, uh, were there any Illuminati uh, in the 1960s? Because he wrote an essay in 1966 that said the Illuminati had grandiose dreams of overthrowing all existing human institutions and of rising out of the resulting chaos as the all-powerful rulers of a new order of civilization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said that, and, you know, and and it became ridiculous. There was another, there there was another individual in the um, society, Nicholas Bove, who who concluded that he, he left the 
society on um, unfortunate terms, and he came to the conclusion that there were um, there were folks within the John Birch Society who were uh, infiltrate who had infiltrated the society, mm-hmm. and that they were part of the Illuminati. So it, it became a it became quite bizarre. Yeah. So. What, um, what happened after Welsh died on January 6, 1985? Who took over, well, and were any changes made? Uh, you know, I, I didn't really follow. I haven't really followed the, the John Birch Society after. I, I got to 85, and I was, you know, I was done. I didn't really want to pursue it any further. Um, I, I can't really say I'm an expert on what's going on with the John Birch Society right now. Uh, Oh, I'm actually told, I was told, I got a call from a reporter uh, from uh, Fort Worth last week and said mm-hmm. that they're or- organizing a John Burst chapter in, in Fort Worth. And mm-hmm. In fact, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, some people, purchasers uh, say that Texas will be the epicenter of their new strain with Texans like Ted Cruz and Ron Paul. Yeah, I don't know if if he if they're involved in it or anything like that, but it's um, it, well, but it's, but they become symbols. Uh, one Texas Bircher says that the more and more people are ready to fight the liberals who preach globalism and want to take away our freedom, our guns, religious values, and our heritage. Yeah, yeah the globalist. See, that's interesting. That globalist term is something that. Uh, Dan Smoot, who is a fellow conspiracist, and um, that Welch really changed his tune. And no one, and, and by by the influence of, of Dan Smoot, uh, who wrote this book in 1962 called "The Invisible Government," um, he he began to speak of globalists and Eastern establishment types and insiders. Uh, and, and you see those, you heard those terms in 2016. I think, I think Trump finished the, his, it was his last two minute address in which he talks about, um, globalists. And then he shows pictures of, of Soros and then Hillary Clinton and, and, you know, all this, um, to, to give a sense that there's this elite that's, that's running the show. It's very much like Alex Jones today. Um, so, yeah. My guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Edward H. Miller. The book we are discussing is A Conspiratorial Life, Robert Welsh and the John Burt Society and the Revolution of American Conservatism. Uh, Mr. Miller is, oh, it's published by University of Chicago Press. Mr. Miller is a uh, Teaches at the at Northwestern University, and this is just well, northeastern, northeastern, <laughs> northeastern on the other side. I'm sorry, northeastern. I, I I had northeastern <laughs> right in front of me, and I don't know for some reason I wrote I said northwestern. Oh well, I don't uh, want my dean to be mad. <laughs> Politico has suggested that, uh, as you you mentioned, that no longer are uh, they talking about communism, but right wing. Uh, what remains a hodgepodge of isolationist religious and right-wing goals that vary from concrete to abstract to legitimate to conspiracy-minded goals that don't look so different from the ideology coming out of that came out of the White House. Uh, it wanted to pull mm. the United States out of NAFTA, which it saw as a slippery yeah. slope that would lead us to single government North American Union uh, and return America to what they call its Christian foundation to fund the U.N., abolish the Departments of Education, Energy, slash the federal government drastically. Uh, So we're talking about not just lower taxes and reduced immigration, but uh, something a lot more drastic, no? Yes, and and a lot of those ideas are tied right back to uh, the early John Birch Society. I mean, Welch uh, supported... Uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Robert Taft mm-hmm. and Eisenhower. He was a senator from Ohio, and he opposed NATO. And Eisenhower ran for president in 1952 because he opposed um, uh, he opposed NATO. 
Uh, that's a reason Eisenhower ran. He wanted to retire. Spectre was Gettysburg Farm. Um, and Eisenhower wanted to end was, NATO? Oh, no, no, no. Taft wanted to end yeah. NATO. Yeah, well, now, and of course, Vladimir Putin probably would admire him. But no, Eisenhower didn't oh, yeah. want to get rid of NATO. Oh, no, Eisenhower was a big proponent of NATO and, and realized that it was the key to peace in the uh, peace in the 20th century. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, but that's what pulled him out. He didn't want um, that. He didn't want Taft to become president and Taft um, opposed NATO. Uh, so that's what brought Eisenhower. Um, that, that's what made sure Eisenhower ran. Now, Welch thought um, that the, that the nomination was stolen mm-hmm. from Taft um, by some nefarious activity going on in, in the southern states. There's actually three states, the south, Louisiana, um, uh, Texas, and I forget the other other state. Um, but, you know, it's very similar to what uh, the former president has been well, it seems to me in discussing this uh, and thinking about what I've observed over my lifetime, that these things come in in uh, well, the, suddenly you have a lot of people talking this way and then uh, the country seems to go a little more liberal. And then we're back to this. Mm-hmm. So uh, is it just a matter of uh, people like the the uh, John Birch Society sympathizers being quiet for a while and understanding that uh, nobody's going to pay attention to them, or are they always working and it's just a matter of whether they find an audience or not? Well, I think they're always they're always working, and but it's not. Yeah, I, you know, I argue in my book that it's not the John Birch Society; it, it's the it's the people who follow their ideas and then they go and, and establish new organizations that, that it wasn't necessarily the John Birch Society that, that mm-hmm. gave birth to the, um, um, the Reagan revolution, but it's the, it's the ideas that they promoted and it's the ideas that they, um, it's, it's the ideas that uh, they, they germinated and then other organizations came and, um, took those ideas and brought it to a uh, a new level. Uh, you know, it's not. It might not be the John Birch Society that that it probably won't be the John Birch Society that's the voice of conservative voice of conservatism in the 21st century. But it's a um, uh, it rhymes. The, the ideas of the John Birch Society rhyme. But they're still so there, uh, and there's a John Birch Society toll free number, an 800 number. I'm not going to give it out because I don't want anybody to encourage anybody to call them. But uh, I'm sure they can find it uh, online, right? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, my book was attacked by the by the president of the John Burns Society. So. uh, So. (laughs) Uh, Is there anything else you want to add before we end this conversation? Because we have a couple more minutes. No, it was a very, uh, very stimulating uh, conversation. I very much enjoyed it. And I I just wonder, uh, the John Birch Society kind of went into decline because of infighting and dissension. But its ideas, as we have been pointed out, have persisted in the Trump administration with QAnon, the Bertha movement, parts of the mainstream GOP today. Uh, yeah. And now the, the, the some uh, birchers are insisting they're making a comeback and that membership is climbing again. Yeah, in fact, the um, I think it was the the uh, the husband of the new Idaho GOP um, leader is a um, is a bircher, uh, so. Uh, you know, it, it, it's having, I guess, a, re, a renaissance, Incredible. a rebirth. Incredible. Well, my thanks. What comes around, <laughs> yeah, what, what comes around goes around. <laughs> and I have a feeling what goes that, around, comes around. yeah, well, I, the, the message of the John Birch Society uh, is a message that still resonates with a lot of people, probably resonated with them before there was a John Birch Society. Yeah. Yeah, to yes. some degree, course, it's a legacy you know, of of what happened after the Civil War. 
Yeah, and it's a legacy of the United States. Richard Hofstetter said the conspiracy theories embedded in uh, the American uh, political culture. It's in, you know, it's always been embedded in our in our culture from the Salem witch trials to the to the um, to the American Revolution to the to the Civil War to the 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 populist crusades of the 1890s to the um, to the hatred of, of to towards FDR. So uh, conspiracy theories are are nothing new to Americans, and I'm sure we'll we'll hear from them, hear more of them, and and deal with them again. As Hunter Biden is discovering as we speak. Yeah. Um, my great thanks to Edward H. Miller. Uh, his books, well, earlier, uh, 19, what, about 10 years ago or so, Nut Country, Right Wing Dallas, and the Birth of the Southern Strategy, uh, published by University of Chicago Press, and his latest one, the one we've been discussing also from the University of Chicago Press, A Conspiratorial Life, Robert Welsh, The John Birch Society, and the Revolution of American Conservatism. What a great pleasure it's been talking with you today. Thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, thank you very much, sir. It's been been a wonderful conversation. And that brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to Kate Guan Allison for all of the important work she did on helping to prepare this discussion. If you're just discovering our program and would like to hear more about what our deep dive interviews, you can access our nearly 700 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. You'll find us on Twitter as well. And if you would like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI to help keep the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Uh, we have so many expenses right now, added expenses, including uh, a serious problem, paying for our tower rent. And we're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212. 209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2WBAI.org. We need your help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content, information you don't usually get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, Anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book that we were have been discussing, A Conspiratorial Life, Robert Welsh, The John Birch Society, and the Revolution of American Conservatism by Edward H. Miller. So why not make that call right now at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. You might also consider becoming a, a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And that's great because it allows us to plan for the future. We know that every month a certain amount will come in. And we ask, and it, it could be $10, $15, $20, whatever you feel comfortable with. We'll say thank you with the WBAI tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations, we don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. So if you tune in regularly to this show, give us that call, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to WBAI.org. Keep this station the only one on New York Dollars, 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us on Friday, and we'll see you then.